Ryan Oslin was murdered on December 2nd, 1997, and this is his mother's story. Hi, Sue. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Phoenix, Arizona is known not only for its extremely hot weather, but also for the phenomenon known as the Phoenix Lights, which was a UFO sighting in 1997 that was seen by more than a thousand people, including Governor Fife, who went public with his personal account. The famous sitcom Alice's storyline was staged in Phoenix, and the exterior of Mel's Diner is located on Grand Avenue and still operates today. Being the sixth most populous city in the U.S., crime rates are always a concern, as they are in larger cities. The gang rate has gone up in the city, and Phoenix's murder rate is much larger than that of the rest of the state. Most are gun-related deaths, and many can be traced back to drug activity. It is reported that Phoenix does have a higher crime rate than 89% of other U.S. cities. Tell me about, what was the day of his birth like? I had eaten at one point. I don't remember what I ate, but I remember I was watching TV and eating. So I get to the hospital, and they say, yeah, you're in labor. But it was back labor. Wow. Well, because I ate, I got sick. They had given me secondal because they thought, you know, let her sleep during the night. And the doctor came in, and I started getting real nauseous. And the doctor came in, and he said, How are you doing? And I started to say, Not good. And I, oh. oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So the whole thing took about 16 hours. Um, from the point that my back started hurting. Oh, boy. So he was born at, um, let's see, I have two. Let me think what he was. 9.28 in the morning. Um, he was very smart. He, he started talking at like 18 months. Oh, my you know, goodness. Words like calculator and things like that. And he continued to be really smart, really smart kid. And um, then his brother was born. Uh, November 24th, 1982. So then I had the two of them, and we were still living in Cleveland, but we moved to Phoenix in 86. He was the type that if everybody was doing something, he'd be the one caught. Mm. You know, everybody would take off <laughs> running all the other little boys, and he'd be one left hanging, you know, with the bag. Right. But it continued, and he did good. He played football. He was really good at it. And on up into the eighth grade, and he had qualified for a gifted program when he was, our school was uh, K to eight. So he had qualified for a gifted program uh, once he started high school. Well, at that point, he was with different buddies and hanging out. And I found out he was smoking weed and he didn't want to do it. 
because all his other friends, you know, he thought would laugh at him. Ryan was a sweet and loving son. He was happy when he found out he was a big brother, and he was close with his younger brother. As children, they played together and enjoyed hanging out with each other. Ryan was an intelligent and artistic child. He created beautiful artwork that was displayed proudly in his family's home. As he got older, he was strongly considering art school to hone his skills as an artist and study in a field he not only loved, but excelled at. He played football for his school and worked on his studies. He was known to be a clever and gifted student. When Ryan turned 17, he became rebellious, as do many boys that age. But his rebellion went further. He started to be involved with a gang. This is the story of Ryan Oslin's murder. So, you know, into high school, he didn't want to play football anymore. He was fairly small. Ryan was really small, um, short, small. And come about the age of 17, I started seeing some changes that I didn't like. The way he, you know, dressed, the music he was listening to. Um, detectives came to our house and they wanted to take him downtown to question him about a homicide. Mm. So I wanted to go, you went, and mom and I were like, no, <laughs> he's 18. You know, we're not going to let you in. So long story short there is he had um, a shotgun that I guess he sold to one of the gang members that was used in a homicide. So during that time, I'll just tell you what I found out afterwards mm-hmm. was that the gang didn't believe that he hadn't ratted out the person that allegedly did it. They didn't buy his story about that. He told the police that, you know, he sold the gun to somebody, he sold the gun to somebody. Well, during those next three months, apparently his life was in danger. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe him. Ryan came back home after his interrogation, but wouldn't speak about what the police wanted. He didn't want to talk to his mother, Sue, about what was going on in his life outside the family home. After Ryan's murder, it came out that the alleged shooter that Ryan had been brought in for questioning about that night had stolen a truck the night of the shooting, and there was evidence that they knew it was him. Detectives went to the shooter's house, and they were sitting outside his home waiting for him. Meanwhile, the shooter was on the phone with Ryan, and when they hung up and he went outside... The arrest was made. The gang felt sure that Ryan had snitched because of this very weak coincidence. The detectives already had the arrest warrant when they were sitting there, waiting, clearly nothing to do with Ryan, and it was later proven that Ryan had never snitched anyhow. More and more signs of gang relations were appearing in the home. At 18, you were legally allowed to own a pistol in Phoenix. Sue found one in Ryan's room. She was becoming increasingly concerned. Ryan, C. 
seemed to no longer be the sweet young boy she saw when she looked at him. Instead, being replaced with someone who was becoming more and more difficult to live with. On his 19th birthday, Ryan and his father got into a very heated argument. Words were said, yelling was done, and in the end, Ryan decided to move out and live with his grandfather. It was a Saturday. Monday, I called him, and he was driving around, he said, and the last thing I said to him was, I love you. So then Tuesday, the 2nd, went to work, and I just had a feeling something, I just had that feeling. I just, I remember driving to work, and this just feeling of sadness came over me. Well, later on in the evening, his grandfather called, and I was talking, and he said, you know, that Ryan had eaten dinner and then went out, and I went over to one of these guys' house. And it was probably about 7 o'clock in the evening, and all of a sudden, I just started crying. Just silent tears just coming down. Hmm. And his grandfather's like, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know, I'm just emotional. Well, 2.30 in the morning, we get that dreaded knock on the phone. And Ryan was killed at 7 o'clock. He was with the gang members. They have, and this all came out in the trial, but they had gone through a, dry, a drive-through and bought some beer, which he was too young to be drinking. Um, and somehow they ended up <clears throat> on this one street, and witnesses saw him driving with three guys in the car, and they drove by and they said he looked upset. Well, then the car did a U-turn and started going back up the street, and then they heard three shots. Mm -hmm. And I guess his car, it was a cul-de-sac, so his car just rolled onto somebody's yard. And again, at two, that was at 7, so at 2.30 they come, and that was the worst moment of my life. I'm, I can see the detective's face to this moment. The heartbreaking news no one ever expects to hear, that your child has been murdered. No matter what field you work in, how much expertise you have, what warning signs you may see, hope still burns brightly within your heart. Hope that this is a phase. Hope that the sweet baby boy you know is still there lurking just under the surface, will be ready to pop back out at any second. Hope that things will be better tomorrow. When that knock on the door comes, all hope is gone, replaced with despair, replaced with deep sorrow. Ryan was shot twice in the back of the head, a third shot went out the window. He died instantly. This was clearly an execution. The gang killed him because they thought he had snitched. They got it wrong, and his life was the price. Sue now had to think of what came next, letting the rest of the family know about Ryan's murder. The family who loved him so deeply, who didn't care about the reasons why, the reasons that led to this moment. They just knew that their lovely Ryan was dead and their sadness deep and raw. 
that they would all be grieving and missing him for the rest of their lives. During the time right after hearing this absolutely distressing and horrible news that her precious son was killed, Ryan's mother moved her younger son's bed away from the window in fear that the gang would retaliate against her family. They already killed one of her sons. She was terrified that they were coming for the rest of the family. She hired a company for private security to guard them and to help ensure the rest of her family's safety, the family that would be coming in from out of town. She had the private security at the funeral and at the cemetery. A tragic time being complicated with fear. So 14 months, you know, I, I worked with them. Every lead I got, you know, I, I passed on. And they knew who had done it. They just didn't have evidence, enough evidence. Yeah, so fall of 99, one of my son's friends came over to visit. I call him the good friend. And he told me a weird thing that had happened. He told me that another one of his good friends worked at a, um, I don't know, it was a plumbing shop, electrical shop. And they were, this guy was on a crew and they were driving and they happened to pass the intersection where it happened. And the guy looked, you know, told the other guys, he said, hey, my buddy got killed over there. And one guy pops up and he's like, oh, yeah, my brother-in-law lives on that street. And he told me that, you know, some guys came to his house covered in blood and blah, blah, blah. Well, that turned out to be the lead. They went to that to the work and took that guy down. His name was Kim. And he, he really fluffed everything off. He left off the covered in blood and them saying they had shot somebody. Sue's relentless pursuit for justice for her son, always asking questions and keeping her ear open, being sure everyone knew that she was looking for information, led to this key piece of evidence, led to the arrest of her son's murderer. The trial began and lasted a long 10 days. It was exhausting. This brother-in-law who told her son's good friend about what had happened at his house the night of the murder was able to tell the police that he had driven these blood-covered gang members to a video store where he rented movies. The police were able to get a time-stamped receipt proving that his accounts for that night were accurate. Sue was determined to stay on top of things and follow this case through to the end. She started attending court. You know, it was really scary, especially to see this guy for the first time. Um, I went to every single status conference, you name it. Because as a victim here in Arizona, I have a right to be present. I'm the next of kin, so I'm the designated victim. I have a right to be at every court appearance. And he can't make me leave. So I was at every single one. Because I thought, you know what? You're going to see me. You're going to look at me. The whole trial, I mean, it was horrible. The, pro the defense attorney, what a jerk he was. He tried everything because he knew he was out of his league because Cleve, our prosecutor, had been there for 25 years and had never lost a case. And this other guy, I started calling him Dweeb Boy. He, he had never, yeah, I don't know how they got him as a public defender, but he was, he didn't know what he was doing. 
So he tried everything he could to get him to sell to the point where the biggest thing I remember is now, if you use your imagination, we had to have a closed casket. Use your imagination of somebody getting shot twice in the back of the head at almost point blank range. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. No. So during the trial, you get a victim's advocate once there's a um, arrest. So she and I were sitting and uh, she sits next to me. She goes with me everywhere I go. And we're sitting there and they start testifying about the, the crime scene. And she's like, put your head down because they were showing pictures and stuff. I put my head down. And we started, we were writing notes back and forth to each other. And I said, is it bad? And she said, yeah, you know. Well, she was getting sick at the point. Mm. So she was like sniffling and, and stuff like that. You know, you know, her nose. Well, Dweeb thought I, I, <laughs> he went and he asked for a mistrial based on my quote unquote emotional outburst. So, I mean, every time he turned around. Sue walked out of court at one point when Ryan's pictures were on display. The pictures of him after he had been murdered, grisly scenes that no mother should ever see, as those sights can never be unseen. And you want to remember your handsome son as he was in life. She needed a moment to breathe. She couldn't be sitting in that courtroom with those disturbing images on display. She did what a mother in distress would do to avoid potentially scarring her for life. She was admonished for it by this sleazy defense lawyer who was trying all the dirty tricks in the book to get a mistrial for his client. Grasping at straws, he resorted to dirty pool. Sue just looked straight ahead after a while, not wanting to be the cause of anything that may pose a problem in the conviction of her son's killer. A mom thinking only of the outcome, staying focused on what was best for her child, even in the most harrowing of circumstances. Ryan's mother was now on guard and worrying about any false moves she may inadvertently make. So she just sat there, staring straight ahead. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool. So please help us to reach as many listeners as possible and tell a friend. And let them know that we can be found on their favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our Facebook group, Morning the Murdered. I want to send a big thank you out there to all of our supporters. You can donate to the Morning the Murdered podcast through Patreon or PayPal at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your generosity. And now back to the show. There have been various gang members that came. You know, they'd sit in the back of the room. I think they were trying to intimidate a couple of the witnesses. Didn't work. But um, one of them, you know, was there frequently and he was sitting back. Well, Cleve was the type. He acts kind of like, if you remember um, Andy Griffith, what was it, Matlock? Okay. Kind of acts real like, you know, laid back and stuff, but not Cleve. 
their mind is working. <laughs> right. So they had showed at one point they got the gang squad detective up, and they showed pictures of the documented gang members. My son's picture wasn't up there. Um, so they showed each one, and, and what it is is it shows their picture, their address, uh, different things like that. So that came down. That was a few days before. Then uh, Dweeb said, well, you know, why would my client, he lived downtown Phoenix. He said, why would he be at that intersection, which was way north, you know, into um, miles and miles away? He said, well, why would he be there? So then when Cleve got back up because they get rebuttal, he said, well, he said, I can tell you there's a gang, there's a, there's a gang member in this, in this room right now, me in the courtroom that lives in, I'm going to make up numbers, one, two, three, four, five, North 35th Avenue, apartment, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at Cleve mm-hmm. and everybody looked at him thinking he got that, that quick off of the slide and didn't say anything and held on to that. That's how good that guy was. That's how sharp he was. And he recognized the guy at the back, didn't say anything, but threw that out there. And everybody looked at the kid. The kid jumped up and ran out of school. While the defense guy is doing his thing, closing arguments, he's putting pictures up on the screen of my son in the car. Now, I already knew they were bad. So here's what I did. I thought this was so clever of me. When he put a picture up, I just take my glasses off and kind of play like I was cleaning them. So I can't see that far. Oh, good. Good. And then he, he takes the slide down. I put my glasses back on and just ask like, <laughs> he put another one up and I do the same thing. So that continued about four or five times. Because he was trying to get, because the only way a victim can be ejected from the court is if there's an outburst. So I think he was trying to get me to like, oh, you know. During closing arguments, the defense lawyer seemed to be trying one last time to get a reaction that could be called an outburst out of his murdering client's victim's mother. But Sue was way too smart for his tricks this time. She wanted to be there. It is her right to be there. And she was, every step of the way. She wasn't going to be chased away from this trial. She wasn't going to let him win and run her out of the room. You are so smart, Sue. And I am happy you had a trick up your sleeve this time. Sue would go home at night wondering how that defense lawyer slept. The killer was charged with first-degree murder and a Class 3 felony. At the end of the 10-day trial, when the jury went out to deliberate, it was horrible. It was agony. The wait was excruciating, not knowing which way the trial would turn out, how the jury would find. Sue and her advocate walked the streets, wasting time, trying not to think of what was happening in the jury room, thinking of nothing but... Then they got the call. The verdict was in, and they headed back to the courtroom. The judge asked how the jury found on the charge of first-degree murder. And when they said, not guilty, Sue gasped. The advocate said, just wait and listen, it's not over yet. And then she heard that the jury 
came back with the verdict of second-degree murder. Not premeditated like first-degree, but knowingly and recklessly. Even though it was an execution, even though they went out with him that night to kill him. Although Sue would have preferred first-degree, she was still satisfied. Sue had brought pictures of Ryan with her to court every day, and she drew strength from them. And when the verdict was read, she held the picture close to her and said, That's it, baby. I did everything I could. And she had. Ryan's murderer was convicted, and much in part to Sue's hard work and determination. Next would be the sentencing phase. Another trying ordeal. Wondering how long this person would be imprisoned for. Never knowing how things will turn out. Never knowing what the judge will say and do. During the sentencing phase, the family sends in letters that are read and victim impact statements are made. Interviews with Ryan's family, as well as the murderer, are conducted. He insisted he didn't do it. When first being interviewed by the police, he would simply claim snitches get stitches, but then eventually deciding to point the finger at someone else giving the name of someone he was trying to blame for the murder, the one he committed. Realizing that his actions, those that took another life, Ryan's life, had dire consequences that he would soon be facing, alone, exchanging his freedom for his commitment to his gang, the gang he murdered for, but would face the judge alone for. And I remember they asked him, you know, if there anything he wanted to say. And the only thing he wanted to say was, how do I go about filing for my appeal? He so did I, not. That's the time that you're supposed to throw yourself at the mercy of the court. And he didn't oh. do that. So he is still locked up. Um, he was incarcerated in May of 2000. Yeah, May of 2000. And he's eligible for release two years from now. It was supposed to be a year from now, but he... He assaulted a staff member there at uh, Florence, where he's at. And so he got an extra, like, year, year and a half ahead on to his time. So he'll be out, and he'll probably be about 40, 41. And I remember one thing I did say during my speech was that it was a waste of two lives. Because it was a waste of his, and it was a waste of Ryan's. Sue made clear choices throughout the whole nightmare she was living from the time she found out about her son's murder, investigating on her own, throughout the trial, being sure to stay focused, and after everything was over, helping others. She is a force to be reckoned with, filled with a determined fight that seems endless for her, for others, for Ryan. I care for our kids. I, I worked with at-risk kids for years, and I remember somebody, one of my one of my old bosses, said, "How do you do it?" And I said, "How do I not?" You know, my son was raised in middle class. You know, going to church. I said, "How much easier is this? To, these kids 
who they're raised right with it. And a lot of the Hispanic gangs are generational. Grandma was in the gang, grandpa was in the gang, dad, you know. And so if they live with it, how, you know, and they fall into it, how much easier is, you know, and my son fell into it. Yes. You know, so I felt like if I could help them. And there are some, I have success stories. And then you have some that have to learn it the hard way. Unfortunately, my son really learned it the hard way. So all these years, you know, I got involved with Parents of Murdered Children. I was, um, my husband and I got involved with them. I was chapter co-leader with Becky Miller for about 13 years. And then I just got to the point where I was starting to kind of burn out from it. And so I stepped down. I, I still stay involved to a certain extent, but I really not, you know, I don't go to the meetings anymore. I really don't go to the events. I'm just, you know, after a time, in my case, you know, it, it served its purpose for me. How did you deal with it after? What what steps would you encourage people to take that are dealing with a crisis like this to help them through those early days? Well, PLMC was extremely helpful. Plus, I have a strong faith in God. And that was, that was crucial, crucial to the whole thing. Good. I mean, I had never gotten through it. Um. Me, I stayed involved with the investigation. Okay. Some people don't. Mm-hmm. Some people don't. They don't want to know anything. Just do your job. But I'm not that type of person. I have to have information. Right. And that's that was what helped me get folks being involved for like 14 months um, in the investigation to the point where <laughs> they'd be like, Okay, well, we'll let you know. And, and, and to the point where he finally just gave up. And I kind of felt like I had a badge and a gun. I was a member of them. But that's just my way. So I dealt with it by being very involved that justice be done. Um, my faith in God and POMC. I called Becky the very next day. And she still talks about how unusual that is. Some people pay, wait weeks, months, years. But the police had given us a, a green book, mm-hmm. and it was all about, you know, what to do afterwards. And she was one of the, um, uh, the group was listed. So that's how I did. But I called her. I, that's when we started. You know, I would call her, and she helped me through it. Good. She helped me through, the, you know, the funeral. And, you know, I have family here, which was good. Um, you know, but it's when they go away. A family goes away eventually. And then you're just looking at walls. So I stayed off about two weeks of work, and then I finally thought, you know, I just can't sit here and look at the walls anymore. So I went back to work. In hindsight, it probably was too soon. Um, because the job that I was in, I was a case manager, and I had a pretty hefty load. And I had a boss from help. And he was kind of, he was one of those people that are like, I don't know how you do it, but can you do this too? You know, kind oh, of thing. Yeah. So I just felt like a lot of, a lot, like they took advantage of my vulnerability, mm. you know, to, to have me. And I was just in shock. I don't even remember 1998. I'm serious. I would look at documents and things I'd done and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't even remember that. I mean, the whole year was a blur. Wow. But, um, but that's how I got through it. Many people are afraid to discuss it. They're afraid to bring it up. 
afraid to say the person's name. Don't. That's worse than, than talking about them. Talk about them. You know, when we, we talk about them, the good times, don't shut down. Don't be uncomfortable. A lot of people are uncomfortable. I lost a lot of friends. They just couldn't be around me. My best friend, though, she was with me 24-7. And I remember she said to me, you know, it was really hard to be around you. And I'm like, why? And she said, because I knew that if it could happen to you, it could happen to me. Oh, my You know, because we were kind of like your regular middle-class family. My kids weren't raised with any of that gang stuff, you know, or anything. But so I would just say, if they, people want to talk, let them talk. Don't try to change the subject. Because a lot of times they'll think, oh, I don't want to hurt them anymore. You know, I don't want them to be sad. Well, we're sadder when you don't let us talk. Mm. You know what I mean? Very good advice. Very, very good advice. Absolutely. And I think of the good times because up until the age of 17, he was the sweet, he was very sensitive. He was a lot like me. He, matter of fact, people always said he was my clone. Mm -hmm. And so up until the point that he got involved with these people, he was just the sweetest kid. You know, he worked and he had a truck and he just, like they say, fell into the wrong crowd. And back in my day, you know, falling into the the wrong crowd was, you know, drugs, whatever. Nowadays, that's another thing I would tell parents. Nowadays, falling in with one group can, can cost them their life. If you're the kind that can do it, stay involved with the police. And even if you're you're not the type of person that, you know, wants the information, here in homicides have no statute of limitations. Unfortunately here in Phoenix, homicides happen just about every day. If you don't keep your son or daughter's murder in the forefront, they just become a file on someone's desk. So, you know, every week, every couple of weeks, call the detective, ask them if there's anything, you know, new. You just want to keep it forefront. Because it will just, unfortunately, fade, you know, as new cases come in. So that's very important. When you're calling the police and staying involved, have one designated family member. One thing that they don't like is when they're getting calls from, like, oh, the aunt and the uncle. and One one family spokesperson. It makes it easier on the, on the police. Yes. If they're only dealing with one person, and that was me. And then I would, you know, disperse the information as I got it. You spoke about your son and you were worried about him being in a gang. And then you thought perhaps he was initiated into this gang uh, or jumped in, mm -hmm. I believe you called it. And do you have any sort of, you know, potential warning signs for parents that they could look for? Yes. He changed the way he dressed. It was a Hispanic gang. A lot of them are, you know, we're in Phoenix, so we're close to Mexico. The way he dressed, he started dressing like them. His hair, doing his hair like them. The music he was listening to, like, you know, I, I totally, it was just completely violent kind of rap. You know, it was rap I didn't like. Um, one day I was in there, and like I said, he never lied, but I saw his bandana. And I remember I was so mad, I kicked it. And I said, and I know what's up with this. But see, he wouldn't lie. He just kind of gave me that little smile, you know, of his. And so I would look at the way they dressed. Plus the friends. I didn't know any of those people. And, you know, he knew. Like, I remember um, 
my other son was 15. He just turned 15. And I remember he said that once his brother told him, you know, don't make the mistakes I'm making, you know, so he knew, I mean, he had even told his grandfather, you know, that he was glad he had moved because he was away from those people. Three weeks after he died, I had a dream and I really don't think it was a dream. It's so vivid. 20 some odd years later, I can remember everything about it. And he was in the dream and, and I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And he kind of looked at me and I said, why well, Tell me what heaven's like. And he looked at me and he opened his mouth and then he got, he had like this silly little smirk and he just kind of shook, shook his head with that smirk. And he said something like, you can't believe or you won't believe. And at that point I started to wake up and in my mind I could hear the word beautiful. And I always hang on to that. I don't, you know, whatever your, anybody's belief from the afterlife are, I highly believe it. And I always feel like that dream was a visit. Ryan's brother is married now, and his wife has a big family. She has four siblings. He lost his brother in a terrible way at only 15 years old. Such a tragedy. Living your teen years without your big brother to lean on and talk to, wrestle with, and love. That void can never be filled. But Sue is happy He has siblings-in-law. He can be an uncle still, and a brother-in-law. He has two children, daughters, Ryan's nieces. They will never meet him, but they will know him. Ryan's family tells them about Ryan, and they see pictures and his artwork still decorates the house. He lives still through all of their memories, their stories, their love of him. Just the other day, Sue and her granddaughters went to Ryan's graveside, spending some time there, visiting, chatting, and the girls decorated Uncle Ryan's grave, his artistic side continuing after death, with his nieces bringing color to his marker, sharing a little bit of themselves with him, their personalities shining through, bringing them closer. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. And you had, you had a lot of great things to say. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You take care. And you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face. And there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality... When someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain But surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.